Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hi, everyone. This is Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth at Petro Medical, for another episode of Hills and Valleys. We are coming to you at the end of uh, the conference day here at the American Burn Association in sunny Las Vegas. And we're very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Kevin K. Chung. Doctor, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And just want to give a little bit of background on you. Um, so Dr. Chung is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point and Georgetown University School of Medicine. And after finishing his re- uh, fellowship in critical care medicine at Walter Reed Army Medical Center, Dr. Chung uh, was assigned to the U.S. Army Institute of Surgical Research, where he has served in the capacity of medical director of the Burn Intensive Care Unit, task area manager of clinical trials in burns and trauma, and the director of research for the uh, USAISR over the last 12 years. He's currently the chair uh, at the Department of Medicine at the USU, and I believe now you've transferred to Bethesda, correct? Well, uh, Bethesda is where the Uniformed Services uh, University is located, and that's where I'm the chair of medicine for that department. Got it. So so just, you know, as background before we get into it, so what, what got you interested to, you know, go and study at, at, at West Point? Um, well, growing up, uh, I... Uh, paid a visit to uh, West Point when I was in grade school, uh, and the minute I stepped onto the parade field, I, I was uh, sold. Uh, I knew that that was the only option for me, and so um, that's the only school I applied to. Wow. And I was willing to apply and over and over again to, uh, uh, you know, if I didn't get in the first year, I was going to apply the next year and then the next year and keep going until I got in. That's amazing. What what did your parents say when you did that? Uh, they were a little bit disgruntled because uh, you know I, uh, we're an immigrant family, and my parents specifically took us uh, out of Korea because there's a mandatory military uh, service requirement, and they didn't want <laughs> us to do that. And here I am joining the uh, the army. Wow. Well, you know, just to you know get a little personal, you know, so uh, I too am also from an immigrant family. I'm first generation, and just for whatever it's worth, just you know, thank you very much for your service for people who look and sound and look like me and my family to live very happily and freely uh, here in the United States. You know, we greatly appreciate it and your well, service. Well, well, thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your support. Now, when in medical school, there's a variety of different things that you can choose to go into. Mm-hmm. So. What got you to choose your, your specialty, and, and what drew you into burn? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, everything happened in stages. Um, so uh, during medical school, um, I realized that, uh, you know, when you go through the different rotations, um, really the, the key is finding your tribe and figuring out what group of people uh, you get along with the most. Uh, and after rotating through surgery, orthopedics, OB-GYN, family practice, I realized that internal medicine is uh, uh, where uh, I found it to uh, be most like home, and I, I found uh, others that were just like me. Uh, and so uh, initially, my um, passion was uh, really directed at internal medicine, being a good internist. Uh, and for me, that meant um, being a real doctor. Uh, and. Uh, asking a lot of questions and being inquisitive uh, and uh, having intellectual curiosity uh, at every turn and trying to figure out what's wrong with the patient and taking very complex 
uh, medical conditions and then simplifying it and, and getting it down, diluting it down to uh, what the next step should be for that patient. Um, so that's uh, what I got into. So I uh, applied for internal medicine. Uh, believe it or not, uh, my first choice was Walter Reed, uh, but I didn't get my first choice. Uh, oh. And it got sent to Eisenhower Army Medical Center in Georgia. And that ended up being the more, most uh, beneficial thing for me. And in retrospect, uh, that really charted the course of my career. I had uh, a program director there uh, by the name of Bill Brown, uh, who uh, had trained at Mayo Clinic uh, as an intensivist, uh, internal medicine and critical care. Uh, and uh, he, he was just inspirational. And uh, just watching him take care of critical, critically ill patients uh, was uh, very motivating. And um, I knew uh, after a few rotations uh, with him as my attending uh, that I wanted to do critical care. Um, he just also happens to be the nephew of Max Harry Weil, who is a giant in the field of critical care, the late uh, Max Harry Weil. Um, and if you were uh, at my talk uh, earlier, I talked about lactate, and Max Harry Weil uh, was among the first investigators that um, basically uh, promoted lactate as an endpoint uh, in the clinical setting. And um, he's considered widely as one of the fathers of critical care. Mm. Uh, and so uh, with that relationship, because of that relationship, I tagged along with Dr. Brown uh, to various critical care conferences and met um, giants in the field, uh, Dennis Mackey, Jean-Louis Vincent, um, others that um, uh, attended the conference, um, uh, Phil Dellinger um, and uh, Dr. Uh, Joe Perillo. Uh, so these are giants in the field of critical care that um, basically I had an opportunity to, to meet face-to-face -face and interact with them. And, and um, I, I really uh, grew to lo love the field of critical care uh, while uh, I was doing my residency in, in Georgia. Uh, and so when it came time to, for me to choose, I, I did a chief resident year, which was a very, very rewarding year where I took uh, an entire year after graduating uh, residency and um, took care of uh, the residents as the chief of uh, uh, internal medicine residents. Uh, and after that year, I, I uh, applied for a critical care fellowship. In the Army, there's uh, really only one uh, slot, and that was at Walter Reed. So I got up to Walter Reed. Uh, it's a two-year fellowship. I, um, uh, the, the benefit, the nice thing about that program is that uh, you have an opportunity to rotate through all the great hospitals in the Washington, D.C. area. So I had an opportunity to rotate through uh, Maryland Shock Trauma, uh, multiple rotations there, Washington Hospital Center, uh, Fairfax, uh, Suburban Hospital, which is a community hospital, NIH, Johns Hopkins, where I did neurocritical care. So I got a very broad um, uh, range of different uh, patient experiences, uh, and it was solid training in that, um, you know, it helped me see uh, that uh, different places do things differently. And just because, you know, you're in one place, um, there are other ways of doing things uh, that may uh, sometimes even be better. Uh, but um, if, if, you're, if you train in only in one organization, you may not uh, see that. You may have uh, blinders on mm -hmm. and only see one way of doing things. And so that, that was the benefit of uh, being exposed to eight different uh, uh, sites 
uh, as well as being at Walter Reed and, and uh, Bethesda at that time, which was a naval hospital, they were separate. Um, and one thing that is uh, striking um, that I should mention, uh, I was a second year resident when 9-11 happened. And I remember the day I was in the ICU uh, and um, I heard about it and uh, I knew uh, right away that my career trajectory it was going to be completely different than what I uh, was ima had imagined before. And um, knowing that, um, you know, made me uh, want to go into critical care even more. Um, uh, and right when I started fellowship in 2003, you may remember, that's when we started taking casualties. Uh, yes. Significant number of casualties. And so the day I started my fellowship at Walter Reed, I had an ICU full of uh, uh, you know, combat casualty, critically ill combat casualty uh, service members. Um, and um, and it, it was just, it had a profound impact on me. I, you know, wave after wave of patients would come in in, uh, um, in uh, critical care, air transport teams would bring them in. And um, it's not just one or two patients. They would come in five, 10, 12 patients at a time every week, every time there was a flight from launch stool. So uh, my uh, ICU experience uh, was shaped by a concurrent war that was feeding combat casualties um, into the ICU, at, both at Walter Reed and Bethesda. And so uh, I, I was, um, you know, it, it's tough um, uh, dealing with uh, young service members being so severely injured, but it helped me as a physician grow and learn uh, from having the opportunity to treat them. And so by the time I graduated, um, I, uh, you know, there's a person in the army called the consultant that tells you uh, where you're gonna go. And I met with that consultant and um, uh, I asked him, hey, I told him, hey, um, I really enjoyed Eisenhower in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, it's a small community hospital. They have a great critical care team. I would like to go back there. And he looked at me and said, uh, you're going to the ISR. And I, I looked at him back and I said, what's the ISR? I had no idea. And he said, the a U.S. Army Burn Center. Uh, it was, uh, it's synonymous with uh, the Institute of Surgical Research. So around here in the burn community, everybody knows what the ISR is. But uh, at that time, as a, a, a naive uh, fellow, I had no idea. And so that, that got me excited because it was a new experience. Um, my wife wasn't fond of and thrilled about going, moving to Texas. Uh, because we grew up in the East Coast. Uh, we made our move, and uh, the day I started as staff uh, during that summer, uh, that was when the burns, burn casualties started ramping up. Huh. Uh, and so uh, similar to what I was experiencing with Walter Reed, we were getting wave after wave of burn casualties. Um, and uh, the first three years, uh, of my experience at the U.S. Army Burn Center, um, collectively, I took 10 days off. I worked wow. pretty much every day, you can uh, take weekends, it, you can take weekends inclu included. I just felt obligated to, to be there because, um, because these are service members. You can't, you can't go home. Yeah. Their pain, <laughs> pain's not going to stop. Right. right. And, and so, um, I, I, you know, it, it was a difficult time in that we were extremely busy. Uh, we had very, very sick patients. Uh, they were coming in all the time. And... Uh, I knew it was temporary, uh, but I felt an obligation to be there. And so um, generally when, when uh, somebody starts as a staff, you know, you may accumulate X number of patient touches over the span of 10 years, 
Well, I had that experience abbreviated uh, and shrunk down to three years. Uh, I had basically, you know, uh, you know, I, I had the uh, ability to and had the experience of following patients from day of admission all the way through discharge. And some patients were there for over a year in the ICU. Uh, these are burn patients. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it just, when you're there every day, you notice patterns. You notice very subtle things that occurs from a day to day. And, and I think that helped shape me as a clinician and it really, really made me a better, better doctor uh, being at the bedside every day. Um, the thing that, you know, made me, uh, alter my, uh, work habits and, and my tempo was my deployment. And so in 2008, I, I got deployed to Iraq and, uh, believe it or not, um, the combat support hospital in Baghdad, the Baghdad ER, the, probably the busiest hospital during that time. And it was very busy during that time. Believe it or not, that was a break for me. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Going from the burn center, being there all the time with very, very sick patients, and then getting deployed to a combat support hospital. Uh, it's ironic, I know, but uh, that was a break. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yes, we, were, we had uh, stretches when we were just, you know, I mean, mass casualty after mass casualty uh, events, uh, full ICU, very, very busy. Uh, but, uh, you know, I... You know, that's all I had to deal with, just taking care of patients, working out, eating healthy, and sleeping. And so uh, that was a good break. So when I got back, uh, I realized in order to um, uh, survive in this field, I needed to uh, take care of myself. Uh, and so I started cutting back to normal ICU schedules. For example, an intensivist generally works about 14 to 15 shifts a month. Uh, in our model, that equates to two weeks uh, a month, two to three weeks a month, and the other week uh, I had an opportunity to do admin and research. And so um, not that I wasn't doing research before, but when I got back, I had a ton of projects going, and that time that I was not in the ICU, I was able to dedicate to research. And so that's how I ramped up my uh, research activities and re my research portfolio. Mm -hmm. I had uh, the fortune of working with um, John Holcomb, uh, who uh, basically, um, you know, uh, he, he's just an innovator and, and uh, uh, I would say a giant in the field of trauma. Uh, and Steve Wolf, who's also uh, a giant in, in the field of burn. I had the fortune of working with them and, and really uh, learning from their they were role models, uh, and I, I saw how they operated. Uh, I mean, operated in terms of the way they thought, the way they, they uh, produced and wrote, and um, the way they came up with clinical questions, uh, the way they finished projects. Uh, and I learned um, through their example um, how to complete, start, execute, and complete research. Uh, and, uh, you know, both of them ingrained in me that a project is not finished until you have a PMID, uh, PubMed uh, identification. Mm -hmm. So basically published. If it's not published, then it's not done. Um, uh, obviously not every project has results in publishable material, but, uh, but um, uh, you know, by and large, um, you know, for example, uh, just presenting even in a plenary session at a major national conference that's just, you're only halfway there. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to get that work published and get it into a manuscript that's generalizable and that's uh, searchable uh, by anybody uh, uh, in uh, anywhere. Hmm. And that makes sense because, um, mm-hmm. you know, when I was looking at your bio earlier, mm-hmm. I couldn't help but see, but it, uh, I'm going to read it from here, that you have authored over 180 manuscripts in peer-reviewed journal and authored about 13 book chapters, and you've been invited to as a speaker at 85 lectures internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you, you know, you look fairly young, <laughs> <laughs> well, so thanks. you've done a lot. And, yeah. you know, it's your, your story is remarkable, and it sounds like, two things came into your life, which is um, your environment through unbelievably difficult obstacles at you that that really tested you, your character, and you had the fortune and luxury to not have one or two or three, but multiple mentors right. that not only guided you and provided uh, their wisdom, but stretched you. Yep. So I'm wondering, what was the most memorable thing that you were ever told from all of your mentors. I know that might be tough. Yeah. Um, so John Holcomb sat me down uh, the, the first week, um, and we had our initial counseling. And um, basically, you know, we had a nice uh, introduction, and, and uh, he looked at me and said, do you know why we're here? Um, I said, why? We're here uh, at the ISR to change practice. Um, everything that we do, we have to uh, gear it so that we produce uh, some type of new knowledge or some type of therapy that is going to change practice and alter the way we do things because the way we do things in the status quo is not is not enough. Uh, it's not good enough. Um, and I learned that firsthand uh, with my first group of combat casualties uh, that came in who were burned. Um, and uh, there were uh, basically a group, a uh, platoon, that um, had uh, an element that uh, were in a Bradley fighting vehicle, and, um, and they hit a, um, uh imp- improvised explosive device. The vehicle caught on fire, and one of the individuals, I can say his name because he passed away in its public record, Alwyn Cash, uh, he was the platoon sergeant, uh, got out, uh, saw the vehicle burning in flames, knew that his uh, squad mates and his, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, platoon mates were trapped inside the vehicle, went back into the fire and pulled his men out. He was the mo- more, most severely burned. There were about six of them, uh, actually eight, um, and six were critically injured. Um, and uh, what we uh, observed uh, once we received the patients is that uh, in retrospect, what had happened, uh, they got excellent care downrange, but there was no record of um, the resuscitation and how much fluids that they received from evacuation point to evacuation point. We call them echelons of care. And so by the time they got to Germany, uh, they had had three or four different handoffs um, with no documentation or very little documentation of what they had received in the prior uh, uh, echelon, and all six of the critically ill patients uh, developed abdominal compartment syndrome because they were all over-resuscitated. And so they need to be decompressed, and if you know anything about burns, uh, having a major burn and adding to it the stress of an open abdomen is a death sentence. Um, and I experienced that firsthand with this group where 
Uh, within the first 48 hours, my first guy died. Um, within three weeks, all six service members that I received that day died. Um, and so, you know, that made me and, and the team, the entire team, we were scratching our heads. Um, and, um, and it just so happened that uh, a, uh, something called the joint trauma system had just been set up where uh, from the ISR uh, was they coordinated a teleconference, a simple teleconference with every combat support hospital in theater. And there were a dozen, as well as uh, level two facilities, which are one step below combat support hospital. And we were able to communicate not only with those downrange hospitals, but also Launchstool and Walter Reed. And we got together every week to discuss patients that were transported through Launchstool. And so through that mechanism, the joint trauma system, we were able, and this still exists today, they still have calls every, every week and they do you know, CME you know, uh, and stuff, lectures, so on and so forth. Um, but uh, back in the day, we would basically go over every patient. And so when we experienced this group of patients and, and the outcomes that resulted, uh, we talked about it online and to, to everyone. And so we put our heads together and we decided, hey, we need to figure out how to document resuscitations better. And so overnight, uh, the Launchstool team combined with the ISR came up with a flow sheet with burn practice guidelines over the weekend. Um, and by Monday, uh, we had a burn flow sheet and practice guidelines that we pushed forward to every single provider in theater. And um, that by that, that next Thursday, when we had the weekly conference, uh, we emphasized that if you get another burn patient, you need to use this burn flow sheet. And this burn flow sheet must follow pa the patient throughout the evacuation. And so what that did is helped us uh, as a system sort of record and, and, and figure out exactly what was going on with the patient because you were recording it every hour. Uh, and it allowed um, in this system uh, for providers when they were uh, getting the handoff to know exactly where they were at. And that intervention alone cut our uh, combined endpoint of Donald Compartment Syndrome and, and death by half it decreased uh, and improved outcomes by 50%. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we published that experience. Uh, and so that, that was among uh, uh, the few, first few papers that uh, we published. And, you know, have going through an experience like that where you, you see a problem, uh, you come up with a solution, and this was a collective uh, effort, and, and you document it and you show uh, and you see a significant impact uh, that was very motivating. Mm. Uh, and that, that's, you know, and furthermore, when these patients died, they, they, they died of shock, overwhelming shock. And there was nothing I could do despite me getting high quality training, state of the art training at, um, uh, during my two years at Walter Reed, I was out of options. You know, I, I could not, I did, there, were no, there were no other interventions that I could um, that I had in my tool bag at that time. And, and so, you know, when you lose somebody that you shouldn't have lost, that's a powerful motivator. And so uh, concurrent to the burn flow sheet uh, effort, which ultimately we uh, uh, basically converted into an algorithm, uh, mm. automated algorithm, and uh, patented the idea 
and, and it's now and licensed it, um, uh, and it's now uh, the Burn Navigator. So you see, you may, uh, uh, they're here at the American Burn Association, um, and it's a FDA cleared device that uh, basically tracks the resuscitation and you're able to use graphics. And so that's, um, that's the result of this experience. Uh, but concurrently, uh, because I uh, had dealt with shock and AKI, um, um, you know, and, and at that time, um, the, th the options that were available to us were not sufficient. Uh, for example, we only had the ability to um, contact nephrology for intermittent hemodialysis. Uh, in, a, in a patient that is uh, 20 liters positive uh, on multiple pressors, and then they go into AKI, mm -hmm. uh, severe AKI, stage three, um, intermittent hemodialysis ain't cutting it. Uh, you, need to, you need to do something else. Uh, it's it, they'll hemodynamically decompensate. So it was a, you know, they, they just can't tolerate the, the uh, hemodialysis. And so it, it became a root pattern where we would consult nephrology because we only had intermittent hemodialysis capability. They would say, well, you know, patient's not going to tolerate it. Mm -hmm. even, and, and even if they did put them on, they, they would be on for an hour or half an hour and they would drop their pressure and they would stop the therapy and move on. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was fortunate to have an experience uh, uh, in multiple uh, ICUs during my training, uh, Washington Hospital Center, Shock Trauma, and the NIH, where they had uh, continuous renal replacement therapy, um, and they had mature programs. And so I learned that technique uh, during that experience, and among the few things that John Holcomb uh, sort of directed uh, when I first showed up, he said, you're going to start a CRT program because mm -hmm. um, we need to uh, have this therapy available for these sick, really sick patients. Um, and at that time, uh, I, met, I was met with a lot of resistance because... Um, so the, for the, we have some medical students and right. residents who do, mm -hmm. who do listen to the program. Can you tell them what CRT is? So briefly? continuous renal replacement therapy. So instead of uh, doing dialysis over a uh, two to three hour session, so you're, you're basically this huge osmotic shifts, you're trying to remove two to three liters during that uh, session. And so it, it's pretty, you know, you're going to have some hypotension. Uh, so it's um, in a already hypotensive patient, unstable patient, um, it's not the best option if you want to do renal replacement therapy. Um, continuous renal replacement therapy, on the other hand, uh, you hook up the patient and uh, with reasonable blood flows, uh, and, and reasonable replacement fluid, I, I choose continuous venovenous hemofiltration as a modality of choice for various reasons. Um, you're connected 24-7, and so if you wanted to remove fluid, for example, you can do it at 100 cc's an hour. That's a more gentle way of removing fluid. So it's much better tolerated hemodynamically. Uh, and so and easier on the kidneys, I'm sure. And, and, well, you're, you're applying it in patients that ha already have AKI. Mm -hmm. um, in some patients, there are other reasons that they go on. Uh, they don't necessarily have to meet the traditional criteria. Some of them, they may be hypotensive, uh, on pressors, and they stop making urine, and they're already acidotic, and they're 20 liters positive. That's a patient, the writing's on the wall. You don't have to have meet arbitrary criteria for uh, they must be uremic with uremic symptoms. This patient needs something done or else things are going to go awry. And so we started this program, and um, I can tell you another story about uh, prior to starting the program, I had a patient who died 
because uh, we just didn't have the therapy available. We weren't ready yet. And it was just heart, it was crushing to, to almost be ready with a CRT capability, but not be able to offer it to this patient. And uh, nephrology couldn't do anything either because they, uh, they could only offer intermittent. The patient's on three pressors. They're not gonna tolerate intermittent. Uh, but we had, didn't have the program set up yet. So once we set up the program, uh, you know, we, we started treating patients and immediately we saw results. Um, the first uh, 30 or so patients um, we uh, sort of documented compared to historical controls uh, during the time when we didn't have this therapy available and our mortality went from 90% to 60%. 60% is the average. Fantastic. Yeah, uh, is the average mortality. And now it's down to about 50% of mortality uh, in patients that get renal replacement therapy. It's just better hemodynamically tolerated. And it's now more, more widely accepted. But at that time in 2005 and six, it, it was not ubiquitous. Not everybody, uh, uh, and there had not been enough trials to demonstrate that this was standard of care for these very unstable patients with AKI. Um, you know, we just, we had no other, we were desperate. Uh, and so in, in times and of we, And when you say we, we the burn unit, mm -hmm. we're, we're, patients are dying left and right. And, and you know, we can't just sit there and, and just let that happen. And so knowing that there was this therapy available, I don't really care what the data showed. <laughs> you know, intermittent is just, the fact of the matter is, they can't tolerate intermittent uh, you need some form of renal replacement therapy. We didn't have SLED at the time, which is sort of a slower, uh, more gentle form of renal replacement therapy, intermittent uh, renal replacement therapy. So this was the solution. And starting that program um, was uh, uh, you know, involved. Uh, it, it required a lot of uh, teamwork. Uh, the nurses were totally on board. Uh, we were just for, very fortunate to have a couple of nurses who were former dialysis nurses who were on the burn team. So they became super users. They trained everybody else. Um, it just so happened that technologically, uh, brand new machines were on the market right at that time. Mm -hmm. So timing was perfect. And we started this program, published our results in critical care. Uh, that then later uh, translated into uh, a multi-center trial. Uh, we got funded by the DOD for $3 million to conduct a mm -hmm. burn-specific uh, multi-center trial. It took a long time for us to get that study published, um, nine years, in fact. Hmm. Uh, so that's available in critical care. Um, and then uh, we also concurrently did an observational study. And by that time, I had presented enough times at this meeting, the ABA, uh, that uh, other centers started adopting this very aggressive technique, uh, applying renal replacement therapy, continuous renal replacement therapy in burn patients. And, uh, and now it's become sort of routine. Mm -hmm. And our next step, uh, now uh, what I'm sort of advocating, and we have a session tomorrow on ECMO in Burns, uh, is um, providing lung support uh, via extracorporeal uh, therapy, uh, which is called ECMO, extracorporeal uh, membrane oxygenation, in those that cannot uh, oxygenate and ventilate uh, on their own. And there were patients that were putting, uh, combining ECMO with renal replacement therapy, uh, and, and you know we have an entire session dedicated to that tomorrow. So that's the next step, the next level in terms of moving and changing uh, st the standard of care. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting, and you know one thing that uh, uh, 
mentor of mine and the first CEO that I served who actually went to West Point as well, Christopher Prentice, uh, he had a quote he would always tell me, which is, you know, you either accept the status quo or you challenge it and invent the future. So I'm wondering, Dr. Chung, what do you see right now as a status quo that uh, physicians need to challenge and, and what's the future that, that needs to be invented? Well, so, um, you know, back to ECMO, um, the current... Uh, standard and the current philosophy is that uh, because in order to execute ECMO, you got to fully anticoagulate the patient. Um, it's you know relatively contraindicated in burns because burn patients bleed a lot and they need surgeries, uh, skin grafting pro- procedures that um, result in significant amount of bleed. And so uh, the conventional wisdom and the experience of the past suggested that. Um, you just, we can't uh, sort of uh, provide, this is not an option uh, for patients who uh, have uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome and can't oxygenate. You just can't do ECMO in these patients because they're going to do worse than, um, uh, you know, uh, than uh, not doing anything at all. Uh, so it was not offered. And uh, when back to the CRT program uh, at Brook Army Medical Center, where when in the U.S. Army Burn Center, when we started our CRT program, um, we started getting consults, us, the Burn Center, from the trauma ICU when patients were uh, starting to develop AKI, um, and, and so, you know, the Burn Center is very unique in that it's a hospital within a hospital. The U.S. Army Burn Center is, and so although it's based. And structurally within the Brook Army Medical Center, it's under a different command. And so uh, that's why it was possible for us to start the program. But when we started the program and it was very successful, uh, other clinicians around the hospital realized the benefit. And there were, you know, residents that rotated with us and saw with their own eyes um, how helpful it could be in helping stabilize a patient. And so they would call us. They wouldn't call nephrology. They would call us. And I would go, and we had about 10 of those patients until uh, the hospital commander was like, why do we have two standards of care? You know, what's going on here? And basically directed that uh, this program, the re- continuous renal replacement therapy program, would be offered throughout mm-hmm. the entire hospital. So we started a program uh, for the entire hospital. So they grew. Um, and because of that experience, uh, when... Uh, the possibility of starting an ECMO program came to be. And, um, you know, ECMO became popularized after uh, the CSER trial that was published in 2000, I forget, 2011 or something like that. And then the H1N1 experience um, that uh, was published in JAMA uh, around that same time, uh, demonstrating that, uh, you know, for adults, venovenous uh, ECMO uh, saved lives. And so uh, we decided to start an ECMO program. Uh, and naturally, the, and it's a really a nursing technician uh, dependent uh, therapy. You need to have nurses that are super trained and willing to go above and beyond to administer this therapy. And so we already had nurses with that mindset of, I'm gonna do what it takes to take care of this patient I don't care if it's extra work, Mm. you know, and they're not getting paid anymore. For them, they saw it as an additional skill. And so um, our CRT nurses were the perfect people to identify 
as ECMO nurses. And we trained them up to do ECMO, and, um, and we basically took that opportunity and started an ECMO program. The first patient we treated had bad toxic epidermal necrolysis where the skin was falling off, but also everything in the airway was sloughing and could not oxygenate and um, ventilate, and uh, that was our first ECMO patient. And then we haven't looked back since. So uh, that program has now treated over 120 patients. It's a fantastic program. Uh, of the over 100 patients, uh, a good percentage happens to be burn patients. Uh, and um, at first, I, w I personally was a little bit nervous about putting a burn patient on because of the potential bleeding complication. Uh, but we, we also started adjusting our anticoagulation uh, strategy where before we were putting them on full dose heparin and we we're really nervous about the, the membrane clotting off. Uh, but then after some experience, we realized we could take it easy on the heparin and go uh, shoot for lower levels uh, and uh, the bleeding complications became less and less, uh, uh, became less and less of a problem. And uh, for the burn patients, we decided as a team that we could just stop the heparin and just run the ECMO without heparin for you know, sp specified uh, period, and they would do okay. And sometimes we would, you know, the uh, the membrane, we would need to change it out, but that that's, didn't be, you know, it became uh, so routine that that wasn't even a problem either. And so uh, this this program is fantastic. And um, and, and now uh, we're dealing with, so you asked, what what is the status quo? Well, the status quo has shifted. Now we're treating uh, burn patients with ECMO, some of them, actually uh, more than half, require concomitant renal replacement therapy. So now we're providing multi-organ support. Mm -hmm. So you ask, what's the future? The future is that you're going to be able to do multi-organ support, maybe to include liver support, maybe to include sepsis, extracorporeal sepsis support or therapy, all within one system. Uh, and, and the problem is, um, the challenge I'm running into now is that um, these therapies exist in different silos. And so ECMO is owned right now, the lion's share of the market is owned by uh, McKay, the company. Um, and the renal replacement therapy companies are com completely different. And so trying to combine the modalities, we just do it in the clinical setting, but uh, asking industry to combine it into one machine, that's a little bit of a challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, not only that, the FDA is a challenge because um, renal branch, those folks that, that evaluate renal products and devices is, is very different from the, the cardiopulmonary branch. And so it's two different departments evaluating the same you know, system. And so they need to mm -hmm. get together and we, we've talked about this. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, there, there are multiple hurdles uh, that, that need to be overcome, but the future is um, you know, delivering multi-organ support therapy from one machine uh, and ha having, uh, being able to leverage that efficiency to treat whoever we want, uh, who, you know, whoever, uh, they, gotta, they have to meet the criteria, obviously, clinical criteria based on uh, evidence and experience, but for the right patient, uh, we need to, as intensivists, be able to uh, treat you know, uh, replace the lung if needed, replace the kidney if needed, replace the liver even if needed, and do it all from one machine. Mm -hmm. And what about, you know, one thing that it seems to 
to come up, but sort of on the on the back end of a lot of conversations, is the effects and the injuries that kidneys uh, uh, sustain, especially with uh, burn and, and and fluid fluid replacement. Um, w- what can be done there, and and is it, you know, even for me coming out of medical school, I don't remember seeing these sort of facts and figures about how how many lives are taken by things like acute yeah. kidney injury and how 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 many people have their kidneys affected? Right. So, you know, I'm a critical care doc, so I, and I'm not a nephrologist. So I, I, you know, this is sort of a joke, but I'm not a single organ doctor. So I, I think in terms of the global perfusion. And so uh, what's going on in shock is that, um, you know, it's good to monitor the kidney, what's going on in the kidney, uh, but it's a uh, sort of a marker of what's going on globally. So in the setting of shock, uh, the body's trying to shunt blood to compensate, shunting blood away from the kidney and the gut and the skin to vital organs like the, the heart, uh, the lung, and the brain. And so we're, you know, focusing on the kidney, uh, it, it's just a portal to what's going on globally. Mm-hmm. And so um, in a burn patient, um, I, you know, in terms of what I think it, you do the normal things like try to maintain uh, renal perfusion, by making sure the patient is euvolemic, uh, by treating their shock and making sure their blood pressure is adequate, um, so on and so forth. That's standard of care. Uh, avoiding nephrotoxins, uh, making sure the fluid balance is, uh, is right. Mm-hmm. Um, really, the, the next level of therapy that right now we don't have is protecting the kidney uh, and um, sort of applying the concept of... Um, suspended animation to some degree. So, um, Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Suspended animation. Yeah, so at the cellular level, there's mitochondrial dis, uh, dysfunction that occurs when a, the cells start to uh, have decreased perfusion and there's uh, cellular, at the cellular level dysoxia. And so uh, there's only a certain duration of uh, decreased perfusion um, that the cells can take, about 30 minutes is all, uh, maybe up to an hour, but beyond that, the, the cell will die. Mm-hmm. And so is there a way to protect at the cellular level, uh, you know, the organ such that it's able to tolerate longer periods of, uh, you know, decreased perfusion and dysoxia? Uh, and and that's, that's what I mean. So there are multiple um, efforts underway to, to um, uh, evaluate, and we call it extending the golden hour extending the time uh, period that, um, you know, basically in extending the tolerance of the organ to injury, to decrease perfusion and injury. And so, um, you know, the extreme is suspended animation and, and basically taking somebody and freezing them to sub, you know, freezing temperatures and, and then uh, protecting all their organs. And that's obviously not realistic. But at the end organ level, specifically for the kidney, if there was a drug that either slowed down the metabolism or somehow protected the mitochondria and, and protected uh, the uh, sequence that resulted in cell death, um, somehow uh, uh, there are some candidate drugs, um, for, for example, valproic acid is being, being looked at that has sort of that mechanism uh, in it uh, and increases tolerance of certain organs uh, to injury. You know, so that's one example, but there are other candidates out there. I think that's the next sort of uh, phase, and, and uh, that's when we're going to make another leap, is when we have a candidate drug or therapy that 
allows the kidney to basically um, uh, tolerate uh, various degrees of insults and just makes it a little bit more robust and, and, and um, uh, resilient. Uh, and so that, that's really the next step. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Dr. Chung, I, you know, thank you again for taking time with us, you know, especially at the end of a conference day. I'm sure your feet are hurting like mine, but we appreciate you spending time with us. And, you know, real quick for uh, all our listeners, what's the best way for them to uh, find and, fo you know, follow and engage with you? So I, um, I just got on Twitter, believe it or not. So my well, welcome, Twitter, welcome. <laughs> yeah, Twitter handle is at ChungK1031. Uh, and uh, I'm Kevin Chung, and uh, you'll find me on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's how you can contact me if needed. Um, that's pretty much it. Fantastic. Yeah, and you're, yeah. you're great on Twitter. You shared a lot of great sites. And one final uh, sort of rapid-fire question, because, again, your, your stories on, on leadership and, and overcoming obstacles, you know, from the time that you applied uh, to West Point and, and, and everything else, I have to ask for everyone, uh, you know, one or two leadership books, you know, that, that you, you give to people. Um, okay, so um, Outliers is not necessarily a leadership book, but it sort of gives you insight, and this is from uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, it gives you insight as to uh, why people excel. Uh, it, it's not the smartest people that, that succeed. It, it's not um, the most privileged. Um, it's not the lucky few. It's a combination. It's not the hardest working. It's a combination of all those things. Uh, and so uh, that that's, provides great insight in, into, um, you, know, uh, you know, the people around you. Um, Seven Habits is a great book uh, by Steve Covey, uh, but everybody knows that. Uh, and then, not everybody. <laughs> so, I mean, that's Just, a must read. If, you, if yeah. you've not read uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, you're way behind because everybody else is on that train. Um, and then um, uh, I read something recently, um, blanking on, uh, oh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. Uh, Good to Great is an excellent leadership book, um, and it's helped me as a chair um, uh, sort of uh, conceptualize my strategy for how, how I'm going to move the department and the organization uh, and help sort of align my efforts with the, that of the university. Um, and uh, Good to Great is a, is a great book that helps you sort of, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, gives you many different levels of um, uh, items that you can, you can implement um, that, that uh, helps your organization. And so those are, those are the three books right there. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, again, hey, thanks for spending time with us and looking forward to checking out your, uh, your, your talk tomorrow. Okay. Well, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely.